Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. We are in our series in 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel. We took a vacation. It was great. Uh, we went to Lake of the Ozarks and uh, really kind of cool story. I'm trying to figure out how to write it, but um, some of you may know the doctor that treated me when I was sick with COVID was a random thing that happened. Basically, uh, the doctor, I went on to do a televisit through IU Health, which is random doctors from all over the country that partner together to do these televisits, right? Because I went to the emergency room and then I came home. And when I televisited, I looked for all the doctors and I felt so terrible. I just wanted to select one that was, uh, uh, let's just say, available because everybody had like waiting, right? So it's like 60 bucks, you televisit, one waiting, one waiting. And there was one guy that didn't have anybody waiting. His name was Olawandi Duadu. That was his name. I'm like, that's my doctor. He's not, I'm sick and I'm here. And so I clicked on him out of nowhere. Um, come to find out, long story short, Malia was best friends with his niece in Lafayette, and we knew his family. They went to the same Christian school we went to in Lafayette. This guy's from Kansas City, Missouri, out of, like, nowhere. Like, we know the Duwadus, and, and so it's like this crazy story. We didn't find out until a week later, because Susan, I don't listen well. You guys kind of know that, and you guys don't listen well either, so we're together as a church body doing pretty well. Um, no, I'm just kidding. And so, so... Susan had told me when she saw the name, she was like, I know that name. Like, we know some Duwadus in, in uh, Lafayette. And of course, I'm sick and I don't care. I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I just laid back down, right? Well, then about a week later, I tell him, he's like, hey, pray for my sister. She's got COVID. She lives in Lafayette. I go, she does? We know some people who live in Lafayette. And so I have a conversation. I look at Susan. I said, do you know we know some people? And she's like, yes, I told you. That's his... That's his sister that we know. In La- so it was this really cool, like, God moment to find him as a doc. He's a believer. We ended up praying together. He called me every day for two and a half weeks. I only paid him $60. And he texted me every day. Most amazing doctor. He runs clinics in the inner city. Like, he just doesn't doctor like normal people doctor. He's done doctoring all over the world. And so he's got a worldview of medicine that's different than American arrogance of medicine. He even kind of told me that. Like, um, Americans are pretty arrogant. They think they have all the answers and can treat everybody the best, and they don't, um, by the way. Don't get malaria in America. You'll probably die. If you get it anywhere else in the world, you'll be fine. Like, seriously, that's true. And so, basically, we get to talking, well, he treated me, prayed for me, like, had his church praying for me, had his sister praying, like, he was totally, in, gave me encouragement because I was like, Doc, if I go home to be with the Lord, I'm fine with that. He's like, you're 46, you're not going home. To, we're going to get you through this. I've got medicine that I use that isn't even FDA approved, that, that is used all around the world, but in America, they don't want to use it because they want everybody to get vaccinated. That's what he told me. Like, he's hilarious, right? And so, so he gave me this med, these medicines, and anyway, so I, I got better. He, he was great. Well, then we were at Lake of the Ozarks. That's in his backyard, Missouri. And I thought, you know, here I am with my family, and I'm celebrating that I'm alive and that I get, I'm healthy again. And like, so I just texted him. I said, hey, doc, I just want to shoot you the text and say, hey, thanks. Thanks that I can be here. Thanks for not giving up on me when I wanted to give up. And those of you in our church who prayed for me, like, I'm just, I'm really grateful and wanted you to know that. He texts me back and he goes, you are kidding me. I'm like, what? He's like, we are going to vacation for two days, Thursday and Friday, at Lake of the Ozarks. I'm like, stop by and see me. He's like, where you at? 20 minutes down the road from where we were staying, literally. And Lake of the Ozarks is huge. You could be an hour and a half to two hours on the other side of it. Like, it's, it's not a lake. It's like a channel that goes. And so he stopped by on our family vacation and got to meet my family. We got to pray together. I got to meet his wife. And, uh, and that was really cool, and they were celebrating his wife's birthday. And I tell you all that as we get ready for our message, because in the world that we live in, what happened, tell me. I just told you what happened. I told you just parts of the story, not all of it. We love to tell stories. We love to, to kind of say, hey, this is what happened to me. But just because it happened to you doesn't mean it's a prescription that it's going to happen to me or that what happened to me is going to happen to you. See, it's not about giving a prescription. God in the scriptures gives descriptions when he's talking in narrative forms. And we're in the midst of stories. First Chronicles and Second Samuel are stories. They're not like the epistles where Paul is laying out doctrinal truths and he's saying, here are the expectations or prescriptions you need to do as a church. 
That's not what this is. But see, we love to go to the Old Testament. We love to go to the stories of God and then like look at God and say, and that's what I want you to make. I want you to take my stick that I'm walking with in Brown County and make it a snake and we throw it on the ground and we're like, God, you're pointless. You don't even do what you want me to do because Moses made it happen. And so that's, it's a description. What we're going into in this next section is very important. Because it's a description of what happens and it describes one of the most important covenants and most important things of all of the Bible and what it's built on. And if we're not careful, what can happen is, and we have done this in our culture, it's July 4th, it's our independence, it's our freedom. And if we're not careful, we can take the covenants of God and stick them on things they're not supposed to be on. Am I proud to be an American? Absolutely. Am I grateful? Yes. Am I grateful for those who died and served? Absolutely grateful for all of that. There's no question. But I have to stop my patriotism at where God's covenants are. Because last time I checked, we're not going to get to heaven and have a democracy and a republic. There's no votes in heaven. God says it, we do it. It's the way it is. And so we have a flawed system. All governments are flawed systems. They will all collapse to a benevolent monarch. By the way, 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel is about a monarch. It's about a king, a flawed king. Because all kings on this side of eternity are flawed. Only one is perfect. And God is giving us a description, and unfortunately what we do when we see descriptions is we love to grab stories and say, God, you'll make that my story, and you'll make that my story, and that'll be my story. And God is working a different story. There is a friend of mine who died two weeks earlier of COVID who runs an addiction ministry that we partner with and give to, and many people in our church have either served with those guys that go there or been there. They come to church sometimes here. He died. His story wasn't he met a doctor in Kansas City who treated him. He didn't get the meds I got because they didn't treat him that way at the hospital. And I can look at that, which I have and I did when I had COVID, and wrestle with why me? Why me? Why not Dawn? Why did Dawn get, you know, to go to heaven and I didn't? Or why do I get to survive when Dawn should have survived? And very easily what we can do is we can run out, listen, we can run out and find a story that we like and make that God's story when it's not God's story. And we see it in our culture all the time. Somebody claims they're a Christian and then they start talking about what they believe and you're like, there's no way they're a Christian. They don't believe that the only way to heaven is Jesus. They're like, oh, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I've followed him, oh yeah, he's wonderful, but I think you can follow Buddha and Muhammad and and, and all paths lead to the same way. Then you're not a Christian, period. I didn't say it, Jesus did. I'm, I'm not trying to be judgmental or mean, I'm just looking at scripture of what's true. You may be describing an experience that you had, but that doesn't mean anything if God's not in it if it's not based on a covenant of your surrender. So we pick up the story, and the title of today's sermon is this. Follow your heart, question mark. Follow, this is our culture to a T. Follow your heart. What that means is follow your story, right? What feels good, what leads to good outcomes. Do you think Jesus really followed his heart on the cross? Do you think his heart was like, man, I really want to suffer and bleed out to the point where there's no blood left in my body so that when they poke me, like water comes out. That, that sounds like a great life that I want to live. He's the king of kings, could have called down angels from heaven to annihilate us all and start over. And yet it said, Jesus said he found pleasure in obeying his father and dying for us. It was for his good. I don't know about you, I didn't find much pleasure in my covid Till after. And yet Jesus was hanging on that cross thinking of us. Thinking of the mission that he agreed to, that the family of God, Trinity, agreed to when they created the foundation of the world. The covenant they made to say we will create man, they will have free will and choose wrongly, and we will make a way for them to be brought back. See, if you follow your heart, Jesus would have followed his heart. He would have been like, hey, I'm King David's heir. I deserve to be on the throne. I get rid of Herod, get rid of Pilate, get rid of everybody. I'm here. And he'll do that someday. 
But see, we like that story, and so did the people of his day, the story of success, the story of look at my life. We don't like the story of death, suffering, patience, waiting, and that's where we pick up the story. Here we are in 1 Chronicles 17. This is also the story, almost identical story in 2 Samuel. There's one little nuance we'll look at that's different than 2 Samuel. They're identical stories. When David had settled into his palace, remember, David got a palace not because he built one, but because God literally sent a king from another nation to say, I like you, I like what your God's doing, I want to build you a palace of cedar, and that king built David a palace. David didn't save for it, he didn't pay payments on it, literally given to him by another king. Okay? Now David could have said, I don't want your palace. That would have been kind of offensive. Someone offers you a palace... Right? We stayed in a palace at, North, at, at uh, the Ozark Lakes. It was literally called Kinderhook Castle. That's where we stayed. It was a castle. It was crazy. Had an indoor basketball court on the bottom floor, half court. Not kidding. I played a lot of basketball. It was fun. Didn't get hurt. That's amazing. Because I'm old. We stayed, and it wasn't that much more expensive than what we normally spend on vacation to go into condos to the beach. We just got a great deal. Susan found it. But we were staying, and all the time I'm looking around going, this place, is, this is nuts. Why do you put that? That's such a waste, right? You look around and you're just like, this could have fed 10 people. Like, no, I'm just, I mean, those are the thoughts you have, right? And trying to enjoy it. Then the longer you're there, you begin to see the flaws in it, right? So about day two, I pulled out my multi-tool because I didn't bring my tools with me. And I'm running around the house fixing stuff. I fixed two drawers. I fixed the sliding door. I'm like, everybody was gone. I was home alone. I kind of read enough of my book that I wanted to read. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm just going to eat if I don't do something. I don't know, that lock on the door is broken. So I started there and then the handle fell off the balcony and my mother-in-law got stuck on the balcony at 5 a.m. in the morning for 10 minutes. I'm like, I probably should put that handle back on. So I'm going around in this beautiful, perfect castle from the inside. Guess what? It has major problems, just like all of us. And we like to cover them up, but they're there if you look hard enough. And we were oohed and awed at the beginning, but by the end of the week, I'm like, I'm glad this is in my house, right? And here's David. He's got a cedar palace. So he said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan is the prophet of the day, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of the Lord's covenant is under tent curtains. Remember, David moved, Mark talked about that, moved the ark and the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, to Jerusalem when he came. So David looks and he says, I'm living in a palace and God still lives in a tent. Now, what David didn't think or ask, which is the same for us today, is maybe God doesn't want me to live in a cedar palace. Oh, no, no, no. God gave me a cedar palace. Of course he wants me to have a cedar palace because it was given to me. And God would never want me to reject what was given to me. Right? Because if God provided it, then it must be what he wants. Do you think Satan can provide things for you? I do. I do. I think he can give you all kinds of stuff you shouldn't have. It's amazing to me how people get drugs. I know God doesn't want people to have drugs, but somehow Satan gets people to get drugs. He provides it abundantly to our nation. We're one of the top drug-using nations in the world. That's not God's will. But Satan can provide just as much. I don't know, we don't know in the story if the cedar palace was the good thing or the bad thing, but I will tell you this, I struggle with it. I struggle with it because of the choices David makes after he gets a palace are not good. If you read the next few chapters, which we will cover in the next few weeks, we see him taking a census that ends up killing many people because God is so angry. Why are you counting all your numbers, David? You don't need to count. I didn't tell you to count. That's pride. Stop counting. Then he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Why? Because he was supposed to go off and fight the war, but he instead was in his palace. And since his palace was the highest point, just like the Kinderhook Castle we were staying on, was built on the top of the tallest of the Ozark Mountains that we were on, go up on the balcony, you can see everything. David would go up on the balcony, and he got to see everything. Oh, by the way, women bathed on their rooftops in that day. You don't think David knew that? Just kind of wander upstairs and be like, I just want to see my kingdom today. 
And he sees Bathsheba bathing and calls her to himself. If he wouldn't have had a tall palace, that wouldn't have happened. If he would have been living in a tent while all of his other men are living in tents and battling, maybe he would have thought about the fact, man, my people are living in tents. Maybe I should be out of battle too. Versus, well, I'm protected with my walls and my castle and God really wants me to be secure and safe while my men are dying. We have to, I don't know if this was right or wrong. God doesn't tell us. I just know we better be very careful with how we interpret what God says. He goes on. So Nathan the prophet told David, look at what he says. Do all that is on your heart for God is with you. Nathan, 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 bad answer. Nathan doesn't pray. He doesn't go, well, let me go talk to God about this before you make this decision. Maybe we should pray together. Maybe we should wait. Maybe God will sing another king to build a tabernacle and we won't have to pay for it. Let's just wait. No, no, no. Nathan doesn't do any of that. Nathan's like, oh, David, you're just doing so well. You got a palace. I'm a great prophet. This is wonderful. I love all this peace we have. We have no enemies. Sure, we got money in the bank. Let's do something. Just follow your heart, David. God doesn't like that idea. Because in the next part, and and here's why. In Jeremiah 17, this is what Jeremiah says in verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I don't even understand my own heart, much less yours. Let's just be honest. There are days I get up and I'm like, where did that come from? How did that? He says, Yahweh examine the mind. I, Yahweh, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. God gives us according to our ways. Consequences in this earth, and here's the deal. If we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then God gives us eternal life through Jesus, who is the way. So if I claim Christ and I'm walking with him and confess my sins and walk and say, God, I'm nothing, you're everything, and I do that, then I'm on his way. And he's going to reward the actions I made to receive Jesus when I did it 19 years old. I made a covenant with him, and God doesn't break his covenants, and that's what we'll see in this passage. You see that? See, it's not works. This sounds like works-based, like i got to work. No, 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 no. It's me surrendering to the idea that God's way is better than mine. What God wants is what God wants. I worship him. I surrender to him. It's his grace that covers me. Proverbs says this. Proverbs 4, my son, this is Solomon, David's son, who built the temple, is writing this proverb. Says this, my son, pay attention to my words. Listen closely to my sayings. Don't lose sight of them. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. See, we try to separate everything. That This doesn't matter, this doesn't matter. And God's like, no, 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 no. Your heart drives your body. You want to know how we know that in modern times? How we know that Solomon was right a few thousand years ago because we didn't believe that he's right? It's this thing called stress that we talk about in our culture that causes blood pressure problems and heart problems and bowel problems. And You guys know about stress? I don't know if you knew that. But Solomon didn't have all the science on stress, and yet he writes, it's not good for somebody's body for their heart to not be right before God. Duh. Now, does that mean our body's going to be better if like, we'll never get sick? No, not at all, because Jesus died on a cross, a terrible, awful, painful death. So these bodies are temporary. He goes on and he says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. So wait, am I supposed to guard my heart or is Jesus guarding my heart? Yes. No, no, you didn't, you didn't understand the question. Am I supposed to work to guard my heart or is Jesus going to like have grace and just miraculously guard my heart? Yes. No, 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 you're confusing me. Let's talk about this. Yes, it's both. It's both you responding to God because he's coming to you. It is the mystery of faith that's been there since the Garden of Eden. Why did God put a tree in the Garden of Eden because he wanted to test their heart, the free will of their heart decision they would make. And he knew they wouldn't make the right decision, which is why he provided all the covenants of the Bible to say, I've been the same, I haven't changed, I'm still reaching out to you. Will you respond to me and let me guard your heart? Will you participate with me? Or will you just stand up and say, you're not coming in here? Uh Uh-uh, 
I got what I want. I feel pretty good. Things are going well. Stay away. He goes on. He says, don't let your mouth speak dishonestly. And don't let your lips talk deviously. Let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead on the author and perfecter of our faith, who is Jesus Christ, the New Testament says. Then he goes on and he says, carefully consider the path for your feet and all your ways will be established. That doesn't, see, we read that and we go, yeah, and it's all going to work out. I'm going to live in America. I'm going to be free. Everything's going to be wonderful. No, all your ways that are the ways God wants you to go will be established. Like his ways are now your ways. If Jesus died on the cross, then guess what? You may be asked to sacrifice and give your life. Oh, by the way, that's what he says. If you're not willing to pick up your cross and follow me, then you're not fit to be my disciple. I didn't say it, Jesus did. Is he patient with us while we go through that process? Absolutely. He's patient with all the people in the Bible, which is why I love the Old Testament. Because it's like, okay, if he can be patient with him, he'll be patient with me. Praise the Lord. Right? He goes on and he says, do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. Ezekiel says this, because in the Old Testament, they would have to come to the tabernacle. They would have to come and make sacrifices as a proof of their heart. Here's what Ezekiel says in, verse, in chapter 36, 24. It actually says it in another place, two places in Ezekiel. It says, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. I will bring you into your own land. In other words, this isn't a land you've earned, you've fought for, you have. I'm going to give you a land. And then he says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Do you see how that works? God says in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, you can follow the heart of Christ when your heart is yielded to him. It's both ends. God says, you have a heart of stone. Do you know that? I want to give you a heart of flesh that's responsive, that can be injured. Stone can't be injured very easily. Flesh can be desperately injured. And he says, I want to give you a heart of flesh. Oh, and by the way, God took on flesh for us. He gave himself a heart of flesh so that he would pay the price so that we could become living stones, the Bible says, that God is building for himself. See, it's all turned around. These covenants and these truths flow all the way through scripture. And we're so consumed about how to have a good life, we don't preach this stuff anymore. You want five easy steps to have financial freedom. Five easy steps for your marriage. Five easy. We all want five easy, and God is crying out, it ain't easy. <laughs> you live in a broken, fallen world who is desperate to hear this message that there's a God who wants to cleanse them, who wants to give them a new heart. He wants to take their heart of stone and their wickedness and change it. And God says, not only will he give you a new heart that can be hurt, but he'll give you the spirit so that you have the power not to hurt. So that you have the power to give your life and actually obey his statutes. Because in the Old Testament, they didn't have the power to obey. They struggled to obey, and they had to keep coming back to the temple and making sacrifices. Jesus says, not so with you. I've sealed you if you know me through my son, or through me, through Jesus Christ. I've sealed you with the Holy Spirit, and now that Holy Spirit is what convicts you. It's what teaches you when you read the word what's true. Jump back to our story. In 1 Chronicles 17, it says that Nathan has a vision. See, Nathan didn't pray. He didn't challenge David. He didn't look at David and say, maybe you shouldn't have a cedar palace. He didn't look at David and say, you know, give me some time to pray about that and then we'll get together. No, David was ready to rush out. He was ready to do, I gotta do something about it. I gotta fix this problem. Ever been there? I gotta fix this problem. And then someone looks at you and says, well, why don't you do this? And you're like, that's not how I want to fix the problem. No, I need to find another friend. You're bad. And you go look for another friend who will tell you what you want to hear. He says, but that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Whenever you see that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, it means the word of the Lord came, which is why Nathan wrote it down. Anybody tells you they have a word from God, they better be right in Scripture. Let me repeat that again, because there's a lot of people running around saying, I have a word from God, and they write books, and they come up to you, and they're like, I, I was praying last night, and I had a word from God for you. Really? Can you open the Bible with me and show me what word you had for me? Well, no, 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 I had a vision. 
Well, then you're writing scripture because Nathan writes it down. And anytime anybody says they have a declaration or a word from God, you know what they did? They wrote it down. You want to know why I know that? Because you have it in your hands. (laughs) And God has preserved it miraculously for thousands of years. He goes on and he says, go to David, my servant, and say, can you imagine getting this message? I mean, you're sleeping peacefully. You're thinking, oh, things are great. I'm in good with the king. It's wonderful. And God's like, shows up. And he's like, listen up, buddy. And you're like, oh, crud, what did I do? Here's what he says. This is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. You are not the one. From the time I brought Israel out of Egypt, by the way, the name Israel means to struggle. Since the time I brought you strugglers out of Egypt, (laughs) until today, I have not lived in a house. What did Jesus live in when he came to the earth? Didn't it say the son of man had no place to lay his head? He even says later that I'll tear down this house and rebuild it in three days, speaking of his body. And he said the temple would be destroyed, and it was destroyed 70 years later, and it's never been rebuilt since. He goes on, he said, instead, I have moved from tent to tent and from tabernacle to tabernacle, because they wear out. You know, you're in a tent, it kind of wears out, and you have to redo it, make new skins, make new stuff. Right? It's kind of like here, we have to set up and tear down. And some Sundays I come in, I'm like, oh, if I could just have a palace. Just have a building where we don't have to keep fixing all these goat skins. And, you know, I come in and the, oh, crud, the, the ring on the, you know, curtain of the tabernacle broke. And I got to get purified gold. And then I got to wait, I got to pray over it. And then I got to, oh, goodness, just because of stupid, can't we just get a temple? It'd be so much easier. He goes on and he says, in all my travels throughout Israel, have I ever, ever spoken a word to even one of the judges of Israel who I commanded to shepherd my people asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Not once, not once is God like, hey, you guys are living pretty good. You're in like, I've settled you now in Israel and you're doing well and like, You're building houses in Israel. You took over the houses that were there. That's what happened when they went into the promised land. And, you know, you took over the cities and you've got all this stuff now. Hey, I'm I'm tired of being in a tent. I, I need some goodies now as your God. Never did. Why? Because he wanted to be the constant reminder that we're living in earthly tents, our bodies, which we'll see in a moment. Goes on and he says, oh, and you'll notice As you read this, what he's telling Nathan, God keeps saying, I will, I did, I will, I said. It's all about him. And he makes sure they know know it. He goes on in verse seven, now this is what you will say to my servant David. So now he repeats himself. I don't know about you, but when I repeat myself, it's important in my house, right? Let Let me say this to you again, right? So he doubles down. Now, Nathan, you're gonna tell him the first part, right? Yeah, Lord, okay, now, You're going to tell him the second part, right? Yes, Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. David, don't think you're, just because you live in a cedar palace, don't start thinking big things about yourself. You're nothing. I took you from herding sheep. You weren't even one of the most important of your siblings and brothers. You were like the last one. And I had to ask, is there another sibling alive somewhere? Oh, yeah, he's out in the field tending sheep. This is David. The reason he kills Goliath is because he was taking sandwiches to his brother. He's doing a Jimmy John's run. Literally. Shows up and he's like, why are you letting this guy just yell at you? Like, I can kill a bear with a stone. I think he can get a guy standing still. See, David had a heart for God, but just like us, we can get distracted. We can begin to start having other hearts instead of questioning our own. And he goes on, he says... I've been with you wherever you've gone, David. I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest of the land. And he does through Jesus. I will establish a place for my people, Israel, my struggling people, and I will plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. 
God's talking about a place where they'll never be disturbed again. Can I just tell you, that means he's going to do it because we can't build a place without him that can't be disturbed again. He goes on, he says, evildoers will not, con- will not continue to oppress them as they formerly have. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will also subdue all your enemies. You see, when God makes promises or covenants, it's the already but not yet principle. Do you guys remember that? We talk about that in our church all the time. That God will say, already I've saved you, but not fully yet. Already you've got a new body and I heal your body, but you're not in your permanent body yet. You've already been given a relationship, but you're not fully married or experiencing it yet. It's, it's the already but yet. That's all of scripture. When he tells Adam and Eve, I'm going to bring a child from Eve that will save the world, that will solve this issue of sin, right? It's the, I'm already doing that, Eve, because you're having children, but not yet. You know what we can't stand? The not yet. I want the already, already. It's already, already. I've I've waited long enough, I've been good enough, it's time to have what I deserve. God's like, I've been waiting 2,000 years and I still haven't gotten what I've deserved, which is the worship of the nations and world at my feet. And you want to know why I haven't? Because I don't want any to perish, but I want people to come to repentance. 2 Samuel 7, here's the caveat that throws us for a loop. Because if you just read 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Chronicles, if you just read 1 Chronicles, I'm going to use 1 Corinthians in a minute, and you just use 1 Chronicles, then you would look and say, yeah, there's no reason there should ever be a temple built. Why, why did Solomon, his son, build this elaborate temple? Verse 13 of 713 says, he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's what we looked at. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. Saul was the former king that disobeyed God. And God said, okay, Saul, I'm no longer with you in your kingdom. I'm raising up my own king. And and remember, God didn't want a king in the first place. Do you remember that? And then he says, I removed him from your way. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever, God says in 2 Samuel. This idea of when he does wrong, Jesus never sinned. Now, there's some Hebrew scholars, not many, but some who say that that's a mistranslation. That the actual translation, if you read the King James Version, it actually says, if he does wrong. I don't know. I'm not sure, but maybe God is prophesying here saying, yeah, you're going to have a son. He's going to do wrong. I'm going to let him build a temple because remember, I didn't want a king in the first place. You shouldn't even be a king. Saul shouldn't have been a king. I should be the only king. But somehow God works with our stupidity to bring about his redemption. I don't get that. It messes with the sovereignty of God. It messes with my mind. It messes with conversations I have. It's just like, and I think God loves it because he's like, yeah, because you don't understand because you're not God. I am. Welcome. To the family. Because I do stuff to my kids all the time that they don't understand. And I don't explain it to them. And I will never explain it to them. And I look at them and I say, I pay the bills. Welcome to the family. It's the way it goes in my house. Probably the same in your house sometimes. Because it's not about knowing it all. It's about surrendering to one another in love. And has anyone or anything on the face of the universe surrendered more to stupid humanity than God himself in love. No one. And so I don't know if God is prophesying here, yeah, I'm gonna let your son build a temple, it's gonna be a disaster. Or if he's also saying with that, that, that yeah, you're gonna have a son that does wrong. Oh, and by the way, I'm gonna give him blows, but you wanna know what the beauty of this passage is? God doesn't do anything to your kid that he doesn't do to his. God doesn't do anything to you or your family that he hasn't done to his own. He owns the covenant. He owns the sin. He owns our wrongs. Jesus was beaten with blows. He was disciplined for us when he didn't need to be disciplined. What a powerful, prophetic, amazing covenant God is making with this David who doesn't deserve it at all. He's just a sheep herder who hit a guy in the head with a rock. 
goes on and says this. Furthermore, I declare to you that the Lord himself will build a house for you. So your son might build a house, but um, let, let me just make this clear. That ain't the permanent house. <laughs> That's not the house I want to build. It's fine. You have a house. Great. Whatever. It's going to break down. It's going to fall apart. Drawers are going to need to be fixed. Door locks. looks beautiful, but yeah, there's a lot of work. Goes on. He says, when your time comes to be with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who is one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Again, Solomon builds a house for me. Great. But I'm going to actually build a house that establishes forever. Then he goes on, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. I will not take my faithful love from him as I took it from the one who was before you. By the way, God never took his faithful love from Solomon. You want to know who he did take it from? His two sons. His two sons split the kingdom and went to war with one another and it led to Assyria killing the northern kingdom and slaughtering them and Babylon destroying the southern kingdom. Because of David and Solomon's sin. See, God fulfilled his covenant to Solomon, but the consequences can come way later. See, that's the thing about our world. Consequences catch up with us. The reason we're fighting so much in our culture now is because of the consequences of the stupidity of our culture, namely slavery and independence. I don't know if you know this. Independence is not necessarily a good thing. It causes a lot of problems when it's not submitted to someone else. We love to talk about freedom, and then we tell our military soldiers they have no freedom once they join the military. And the reason we have freedom is because those guys believe that the only way to have freedom is to actually listen to their commanders and do what they're told and die for you and me. That's a Bible story. That's the gospel. Goes on, he says, he will build a house for me and I will establish it forever. I will be a father. And then he goes on, he says, I will not take it away. I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. Of course, God is not talking about Solomon because Solomon is not going to live forever. He's talking about a king, an earthly king that will come from the line of David, i.e., read the first part of Matthew and Luke and the lineage of Jesus and how it's connected to King David. He goes on and says this, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing, and this is what he talks about about this temple or this tent. He says, for we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. You realize your, your house is gonna get torn down. I'm not talking about the earthen one. I mean you physically. You are going to break down. Trust me, I feel it, right? Like to, this morning I was wearing one of those tendonitis bands on my wrist and somebody, I don't remember who it was, looked at me and said, Matt, what, what is that? Like, is that like some kind of, you know, listen, what do you, I'm like, oh, it's a tendonitis band because my tendonitis has gotten so bad over the years from pitching. It was from pitching in L when I was young, throwing so many curveballs, and I've had problems with it for years, and it just keeps getting worse. I'm falling apart. I mean, it's just, it just happens. He's like, yeah, but know that God's building something different, a house not made by hands, but eternal in the heavens. For indeed, if this in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. That was me laying there with COVID about week one, week two. Since in fact, after putting it on, we will not be found naked. In other words, I'm not going to stand before God like they did in the Garden of Eden and be ashamed and naked. I can actually approach the throne of grace of God because of what Christ did to me and say, you clothed me, you saved me, you've done this. Then he says, for indeed, we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the spirit as a pledge. That's what we, that's what we read in Ezekiel that was hundreds of years earlier. He says, therefore, being always of good courage, always? Because I wasn't really of good courage until my wife put Betty's letters on top of my TV stand and said, you need to read, this woman's praying for you and I'm done. And she walked out of the room because she was so tired of listening to me complain. So you need people of good courage that will always keep pointing you to the person of God. It will always keep pointing you to who he is. Yeah, he might save you. Maybe he doesn't. I'm praying he will, but I know if he doesn't, you're still saved. So there, take that. 
You need those people in your life. Then he goes on and he says, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not sight. I live in a cedar house. God lives in a tent. I guess I need to build it. That's sight thinking. Stop sight thinking. Sight thinking is short term. What for me? What do I see? What do I know? What I can figure out? Faith thinking is long term. It's looking all the way back in scripture and all the way forward and saying, God, how do I fit in this mess? I surrender to you, and it may not work out well. I still surrender. He goes on and he says, but we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And Paul's like, I, I, they keep beating me, dragging me out of the city, and then God keeps resurrecting me. I'm fine if God wants to kill me at the next beating. I'm good, right? Paul's like, then it says, therefore we also have our ambition, as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. See, that's faith. Faith is saying, what would please God the most? I want to do that. Versus saying, how much can I please God that he'll be okay with so that I can get on with my life? That's what the world does. That's works-based thinking. That's sight-based thinking. He goes on, John 14, Jesus said this, do not let your heart, remember follow your heart, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. In other words, the place isn't here. The place isn't America, it's not China. There's no place on this earth where we're gonna find comfort and like stability. It's not going to happen. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place and we'll see in a minute, he brings it back for us. And he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you will be also. That's like the great, that's like the bride, the, the groom preparing a home, having a home to bring his wife to, right? That, that, this is this beautiful thing of saying, you can trust me, I'm getting ready. I'm, it's secure. Don't follow your heart, Jesus says. He says, follow me. Stop following your heart and follow me. And if you follow me, the Bible says, I'll give you my heart. And then we can walk together. He goes on and says this. Nathan reported all these words in this entire vision to David. Oh, man, that had to be hard to eat crow. Right? You've been a good prophet, whatever else, and all of a sudden you have this vision. You've got to go back and tell the king, the one in charge of everything, uh, king, you're wrong and I'm wrong and uh, we, we need to have a conversation. Sorry, I didn't pray about it, didn't think about it. Um, my bad. And he tells him the whole vision. Now, what should David's response be? You'd think David would be like, well, you told me, Pastor, you told me, Nathan, that I could do it, and so it's already done, and I've done it, and I'm not going back now. I signed the contract. I put deposit down. We're building a temple. I, Old National, I signed it, now it's, and I'm, I'm not going to lose my deposit. I mean, I'm not going to lose $500. That's a lot of money. But you're going in debt $500,000. No, let's not talk about that. I will lose that 500 bucks. Then King David went in. Look at this. See, this is David's heart. Even though he's struggling, even though maybe he shouldn't be in a palace, even he's trying to walk with God in the midst of all the mess he's in. Look at this. King David went in and sat in the Lord's presence. He sat. That means he went in and he just sat down and laid before God and said, I'm nothing. Posture means something. David's a king. He should be walking in with a crown and saying, hello, God, I'm king. You made me king. Now this is what I want. Thank you. It's not what David does. He goes in and he sits with the Lord. That's intimate. That's personal. And then he says, who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me this far? David is like, I don't even deserve to be king, and now you've made me an eternal promise. I don't deserve that. I don't. There are people that are wondering what are going to happen with their children, and you're telling me that I'm going to have children and great-grandchildren that love and follow you? Wow. You can see David's heart. His heart isn't, I'm going to build it. I'm going to show off. I'm going to, look at what we've built. He's like, you're going to build it, and that just gives me such encouragement to know that you're going to build your people through my kids, 
This was a little thing to you, God, for you have spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. David gets it. David understands that this isn't about the next kid in line. David understands that while the kids matter, there's something bigger going on. There's a distant future and hope that he's pointing them to. You regard me as a man of distinction, Lord God. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? Do you realize David is all about you, 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 you? It's not about him. And then he says, you know your servant. Lord, you have done all this greatness, making known all these great promises because of your servant and according to your will. David's like, it's all you. He's in worship here. He is worshiping. He's not upset that he can't build the temple. He's not upset that he doesn't have a building. He's just like, I want to worship you. Goes on, it says, Lord, there's no one like you and there is no God besides you as all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people, Israel? Your stubborn strugglers. Who's like them? You came to one nation on earth to redeem a people for yourself, to make a name for yourself through great and awesome works by driving out nations before your people you redeemed from Egypt. There is no covenant with America from God. God did make, not make a second covenant with the United States of America. He has made one covenant with one people, and we are adopted into Abraham, the New Testament says. We are adopted into his people because of the faithfulness of God's covenants to his people. We're adopted kids. Does that mean I don't love my nation? No. It just means it's second to this. And David says, I'm second to your covenants and your promises. Then he goes on and he says, you made your people Israel your own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Wow. He's not done yet. Now, Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant his house be confirmed forever and do as you have promised. Why don't we pray like that? We go to God and we're telling him, this is what you should do. And I want this to happen. And you do this for this person and this for this person. Versus saying, God, you've promised that you can heal. And you've promised that you'll heal forever. And so God, I'm trusting you with my brother, my sister in Christ. I'm trusting you with your outcome because your promises are true either way. And so I believe by faith that you can do what you say you can do. You can heal or you can wait to heal. It's in your hands and we trust you and we praise you. Man, I wish we prayed that way. Instead of making demands of God like we're some king. Because that's not David's posture. Then he says, let your name be confirmed and magnified forever in saying, Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, is God over Israel. May the house of your servant David be established before you, since you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Remember, it's not as hard for David to have faith as we are, because how did David get the house he's living in? Who built it for him? Somebody else. David's like, well, you gave me one house. You probably give me another one because you just give stuff. Now, I need a place to live, but I'll check in with you on what you want. Then he goes on. He says, since you have revealed to your servant that you will build a house, your servant, look at this. Underline this in your Bible. Highlight it. If you don't like to write in your Bible, then find some place to write it down. Your servant has found courage to pray in your presence. You want to know why you can have courage to pray before God? Because he always fulfills his promises. We can pray to him. We can ask. We can even come to him selfishly sometimes and wait for an answer, which happens all the way through scripture. You want to know why? Because we can have the courage to go to him because he says, I won't break my promise. If you know me, I love you and we have a relationship. You're my child. It cannot be separated. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ, Paul said. Not anything, not demons, not powers, not principalities, not authorities. Nothing can separate me. Nothing, nothing. And David knew that, and that's why he's like, I now have the courage to pray in God's presence because he has given me a covenant to say, it's good. We have the covenant of David. That's what we're, if you know Jesus, you're trusting in King David, his line. You're trusting in Jesus. That Yahweh will save through David. That's what Jesus' name means. There's a huge danger in wanting things now. Versus having the courage to just pray and say, God, it's, it's up to you. 
You know what's also interesting? Nathan and David didn't put together their word of God and put together their vision and put together their worship and then sell it in the Jerusalem bookstore. They wrote it down free of charge for all of us to have. Goes on and says this, Yahweh, you indeed are God. David's still not done. This is a long worship. And you promised this good thing to your servant. So now you have been pleased to bless your servant's house that it may continue before you forever. For you, Lord, have blessed it and it is blessed forever. Can I just tell you that our church is blessed forever? You want to know why? Because Jesus says, I will build my church. One stone at a time. One person at a time. I will take a heart of stone, I will make them into a heart of flesh, and when they die, I will place them as a living stone forever. They're mine. It's it's the same promise. It hasn't changed. Goes on, Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. King David began to store up treasure for the building of the temple, the physical temple. He got his theology right, but I question sometimes if he was practically supposed to give it up. Or give it to Solomon. You want to know why? His sons ended up all going to war against each other. You want to know why? Because David had a big coffer of stuff. If dad doesn't have anything, it's not like you want to kill him to get it. Because he doesn't got nothing. But if dad's got a lot and you said that you're going to give the kingdom because God told you to the adulterous child, Solomon, who came from adultery through Bathsheba and I, Absalom came from righteous marriage, how dare you? And you know what? The nation actually agreed with him. Most of the nation followed Absalom. Even David's own commander, we'll see later, followed Absalom to overthrow the kingdom. And Absalom's killed. David's other sons, are. it's, it's a mess. It's a disaster. And I always wonder, is it because David, while he got his theology right, began to practically prepare for the wrong thing? So there was something to fight about. Wealth. Being the one that gets to build it. And daddy saved up for it and I gotta be the one. I don't know. Am I reading into the text? Possibly. But man, these stories are far deeper and far more stretching than we like to give them credit for. We love to just read it and go, oh yeah, yeah, move on. Instead of pausing to think. Ephesians, Paul writes this, so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but your fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He's talking about building. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of the new temple, of the new building that's being built, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God says, I want to dwell with you. I don't want to dwell in a building and have you come to it. I actually want to be in you, with you, together. That was the plan in Garden of Eden. Did you you realize that? He wanted to walk with them, be with them all the time, and they're like, he's not around. Let's eat the fruit. Like I mean, that's what we do. So we go to the building, we make the sacrifices, we come to church, we do the right thing, and then that tomorrow we're cursing at our boss. Tomorrow we're mad. Weren't you just in the temple yesterday? You're still carrying the temple of your heart with you. It's not like you go to church and be good, and then the next day, that's not how it works anymore. He goes on and says this in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? It's no longer in an ark. It's no longer in a holy of holies. God tore the veil in two and gives you the Holy Spirit within you now, which is crazy weird. And trust me, the people of Jesus' day did not like that message because when the priests went into the holy of holies, they got struck dead if they had sin on them. I don't know about you, but that should panic you a little bit. It should like go before God. God, I want you in here. I want you, I know you're in here. Uh, help me, because it's really dirty in there. Not, don't open that closet. No, 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 no. I shove stuff in there. That's my secret spot. He goes on and he says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that person, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 
All things are permitted for me, Paul says, but not all things are beneficial. They're not benefit. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be mastered by anything because I have one master, one king, one God. I follow him. I don't follow my heart. I don't do what I feel led to do. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You're together being built. That's why the church is so important, the body of Christ. And the way we treat the body of Christ and move in and out of churches and families is really important. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Something I discovered when I wrote this message, and I think I'd missed it for a long time. As I wrap up, I want you to consider this. This is the end of the story. We've been walking through the story. The end of the story is Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. John is writing, just like Nathan had a revelation. John had a word from God, so he wrote it down. Imagine that. And he wrote it down for us to have, and this is what he said. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Then I saw, look at this. The holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus, right now, in intermediate heaven, is building a city. He is building something to bring back from earth. He's not going to use the stuff here. He's using other stuff, and he's going to bring that other stuff here. I don't know how that works. I just know he said it. He goes on, and he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the tent. It's still a tent. It's still a tent. The tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He's talking about himself, that Jesus is our tabernacle, our tent that we trust in, that we go through so we can have access to the family of God. Then he goes on, he says, he will wipe every tear. That tabernacle will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, no sacrifice. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now watch this in verse 22. You jump down and it says, I saw no, what? Temple. I saw no temple in the new Jerusalem, in the new holy city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. There's no longer a barrier. There's no longer a place. I have access to God himself and that heavenly family, and it doesn't matter what building we're in, we're a family. There's no temple. It says the gates are wide open. You want to know why? Because there's no sin. When you read before verses 22 and read earlier in Revelation, it talks about that from the temple, God is giving his wrath. All the way through Revelation, it says the temple. And so there is an intermediate temple that's in heaven. There's a temple that is storing up wrath. See, that's what the temple was designed to do. It was designed to remind us that God is holy and we deserve wrath. And he needs to provide a way for us because we're in trouble. And right now, there's a temple in heaven and we are people of wrath. And Jesus has made the bridge for us to be able to have access. But one day, that temple is going to be wiped out. He's going to bring down a new city and there's no temple I have relationship so I don't know if David was supposed to build a temple or was supposed to tell Solomon to build a temple I don't know all I know is that God throughout the scripture keeps saying it's about relationships my people not just you and me us he goes on he says and the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord has illuminated and its lamp is the lamb. Jesus is referred to as the lamb. David is the shepherd. He should be a shepherd and he's still taking the posture of being the sacrificial lamb for us. He goes on and he says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it because we don't want to give glory we want glory for ourselves. We want old glory. 
right? Is what we call the flag. Not against our nation, let me say it again, I am grateful. It's amazing what God has done by raising up America. But he raises up and tears down nations at will, how he wants, when he wants. And he says that that's going to happen. As we wrap up, 1 Chronicles 18 at the end says this, And the Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and righteousness for all the people. See, that's our role. Our role is to go out and administer justice and righteousness to the people, which is loving. To tell them there's a just God, there is a righteousness that's coming, and you need to deal with it. We keep trying to build temples, and God's like, I want to build you. <laughs> I want to build us. I want you to see that I'm building it. See, that's, that's the beauty, if you'll just take a minute. Now, again, should Solomon have built a temple? I don't know. Should Saul have been king? No. Should David have been king? Well, God made him king. <laughs> you make sense of it. As for me and my house... We'll trust the Lord. We'll walk by faith and believe that these promises and these covenants are a lot better than the ones we're given. And I'll trust it because it's consistent. So let me ask you, will you follow your heart or will you follow the one that can change your heart? Will you follow him? Will you allow him to give you a new heart? Will you allow him to put his spirit in you and to create into you the person you want you to be? Or will you say, well, I've got plans. I've got stuff. i got... Just surrender. It doesn't mean he's not going to give you plans and do stuff. He will. But on his timeline, how he wants, according to his will. And we can have all our theology right and maybe make wrong decisions. And that gives us the grace of God, just like he had grace for David and Solomon and all of his sons to continue to say, I'm going to fulfill my promise. And he'll fulfill the promise to you, even if you're a wreck. He has a promise he wants to extend to you. And when you make that covenant to say, I embrace it, it's done. It's forever. And you can worship like David did for multiple verses <laughs> and say, I follow you now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you that you do provide things on this earth for us that you're gracious to us. Even if we provide things for ourselves we shouldn't have, you still have a way of working those things for our grace and for your glory. I don't understand that, but you do. And so, Father, I pray that if people here are struggling with following their heart this morning, I pray that they would hear the words of Nathan the prophet, which are really your words, that they would have a heart response like David to go to your word, and when they read what your word says, they wouldn't ignore it. They wouldn't harden their heart, but they would go in to sit with you and worship and understand that the promises that they have are forever. And if it means a sacrifice or a laying down of their life, it's worth it for the long term. Father, that's what we want to be as a church. It's not a popular message. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us a most of us have palaces to live in compared to the rest of the world. If we have a home or a nice apartment, it's a palace compared to what most people live in. But I thank you that you've kept our church, at least for now, in a tent. Because it's a constant reminder to us that this isn't our permanent home. This isn't our building. This isn't our place. It's yours. This isn't ours. It's yours. And there's a community that's perishing who needs to know you. They need to know the tabernacle. They need to know that there's a place they can go to find forgiveness, to build a bridge. And instead of following their heart, what leads to destruction and is deceitful, they can follow you because you have a heart for us. And so Lord, this morning, if someone needs to just pray and surrender to you, I pray they would. They'd say, Jesus, I'm done. You're the only one that can save and I surrender to you. I'm done following my heart. I want yours. I trade this heart of stone for the heart of flesh Teach me your ways. And for those of us who are believers, I pray that we would consider these things carefully, that we would ask questions that David wasn't willing to ask. We'd worship like David was willing to worship. And that we would see that our life, while it may seem insignificant, has eternal weight for the future. I thank you for those faithful people who have gone before us 
And I thank you for the promise of the faithful people that will go out from us and continue because you're building your church. And we praise you. Amen.